morning, church. Grace and peace to you from the Lord Jesus Christ. Welcome to this time of worship together at Faith Community United Methodist Church. It's good to be with you this morning in worship. I would invite you to find the attendance pads that are in the pews and fill those out. Pass them along to others worshiping beside you so that we can uh, have a record of your presence here with us in worship this day. I want to let you know that this evening is our all-church family game night, and everybody is invited to that. It's for people of all ages. We'll have food, we'll have games, uh, and just a lot of fun. You don't have to bring anything. Just come uh, at 5 o'clock this evening in the community center and uh, join together as a church family just to have some some fellowship. Uh, Everybody's invited to that. Uh, Next Saturday is the Shoes for the Shoeless program, where we will be reaching out to the children of this community with free shoes, and uh, if you would like to volunteer as a part of that program, there's an announcement in your bulletin about how you can sign up to volunteer with that. I uh, want to also welcome those who are worshiping with us online today, and thank you for joining us, and we pray that you will feel a part of this worshiping community. As we begin to worship, let's stand together as we are able and join together in worship. Oh. Wonderful to have the choir back. (laughs) The call to worship. Draw near to God, and God will draw near to you. Happy are those who find delight in God's law. God is always nearer than our next breath. We gather to become more aware of that presence. Knowledge of God is a delight to the righteous. They grow in, they seek to grow in wisdom and understanding. There is always more to discover than we know. God is our teacher and helper and judge. Put your trust in God as you prepare to serve. Learn to be peaceable, gentle, and merciful. We seek to do good and not harm in all our days we would open our hands to the poor and needy. Our opening hymn this morning, Love Divine, All Loves Excelling, is number 384 in our hymnal.
please be seated. And would you join me in our opening prayer as printed in our bulletin? Let us pray. Life-giving God, we gather in your presence to offer you thanksgiving and praise for all that you have done for us through the life, death, and resurrection of your Son, Jesus Christ, we have been set free, free from the power of sin that leads to death, free to follow the leading of your Holy Spirit, free to love you with all our heart and soul and strength, free to worship. May your Holy Spirit inspire our praise and our prayers. Open our hearts and minds to your presence among us and within us and to the word you have for us today. Amen. Our prayer hymn is printed in your bulletin on this lovely green sheet of paper. Just a closer walk with thee.
Oh dear Lord, we come before you this day in this time of worship so that we might truly walk closer to thee. You are our Lord, our Savior, our Redeemer. You are the one in whom we place all of our hope and our trust. And we come to place ourselves before you humbly, knowing, Lord, that we can never measure up. We want to never falter. We want you to keep us from all wrong, and yet we know, Lord, that we do. We stumble day by day. But Lord, you have forgiven us. You have been faithful to redeem us time and time again. And so, Lord, we come before you humbly, confessing once again, confessing that we have sinned, we have failed you, we have failed one another, we have failed ourselves. But, Lord, your love has called us back, back into your presence. And so all we can do is thank you and offer you our praise. Lord, we pray for all of those who weigh upon our hearts this morning. We know many who are going through difficult struggles right now. And we know, Lord, that you are the one who is able to strengthen them through all things. So we pray for your grace and your healing. And even now as we pray for that, we thank you. For we know that your goodness is shining forth in each one of their lives, in each one of their circumstances. We thank you for that. We thank you for showing your grace in our lives, giving us the strength for all to which you call us. Make us faithful, not just as individuals, but as a church, as we continue to seek ways to love you and to share that love with others. Through the ministries of this church, through our missions and outreach, we pray, Lord, for each one who is touched by that, that they will know it is because of you, because of your sovereign love. We pray for you to bless this time of worship, strengthen each one of us through your grace and your spirit now, as we offer to you the prayer that your Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, teaches us to pray together. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our sins, as we forgive those who sin against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory forever. Amen. I invite the ushers to come past the offering plates as we continue to offer ourselves to God in worship through the giving of our tithes and offerings.
Please join me in the prayer of dedication. We who have spent much on our own pleasures are pleased to share that others may obtain the necessities of body and spirit. Thank you, God, for this opportunity to support the ministry and mission of our congregation. May there be a harvest of righteousness among us, shown in the peaceful handling of disputes in mutual love and support, and in courageous outreach to people near and far who need the help we can give. Bless each gift and giver. Amen. Please be seated.
Oh, it is so good to have them back. Our scripture lesson this morning comes from the book of James, fourth chapter, 1 through 10. Those conflicts and disputes among you, where do they come from? Do they not come from your cravings that are at war within you? You want something and do not have it, so you commit murder. And you covet something and cannot obtain it, so you engage in disputes and conflicts. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly in order to spend what you get on your pleasures. Adulterers, you do, do you not know that friendship with the world is an enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. Or do you suppose that it is for nothing that the scriptures says, God yearns jealously for the spirit that he has made to dwell within us, but he gives all the more grace. Therefore, it says, God supposes the proud and gives grace to the humble. Submit yourself, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Lament and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned into mourning and your joy into dejection. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. The word of God for the people of God. Thanks, Thanks be, be to God. God. One of the definitions for the word agent is a, biz, a person or a business authorized to act on another's behalf. Someone who acts on behalf of another. The question posed for us in today's reading from James is this, are you an agent of God or are you an agent of Satan? They both want you as their agent, but you can't work for both. The Bible tells us over and over again that you can't be an agent for both God and the devil. And yet we do try, don't we? Whether we realize it or not, we are sometimes double agents. Openly praising and serving God, but secretly, behind the scenes, in our own hearts, we also serve the devil. Or we serve our own personal self-interest, which is really the same thing as serving the devil, if we are not perfectly submitted to God, we act on the devil's behalf, wallowing in sin, even justifying sin, while we claim to serve God, hoping that God doesn't notice, hoping that God's people won't realize the deceit, thereby making us double agents. Once again, James tells us, as he has been telling us all along through this letter, this ought not to be so. Chapter 4 of James begins with these words, those conflicts and disputes among you, where do they come from? 
Before getting into James' answer to that question, consider the question itself. I mentioned previously in this series of sermons on James that James did not write this letter to a specific person or community. Paul's letters are almost always addressed to a particular church or a particular person addressing some specific situation that he's become aware of. Not so with James. James addresses his letter to the 12 tribes in the dispersion. The 12 tribes refers to the 12 tribes of Israel. James, just like his brother Jesus, was Jewish. His parents, Mary and Joseph, raised him in, a, in the Jewish faith. Following the resurrection of Jesus, when James came to faith in Christ, it was faith that Jesus was indeed the Messiah that the Jewish people had been anticipating for centuries. James became the leader of the church in Jerusalem, which was, like him, thoroughly Jewish. But not all Jewish people lived in and around Jerusalem. Jews had been scattered all throughout the known world by that time. Those Jews who lived outside of the Holy Land were referred to as the dispersion. As Christianity spread throughout the known world, many of these Jews in the dispersion became believers in Jesus, just like James and the others back home in Jerusalem. Furthermore, as Gentiles were converted to the faith, they were seen as being grafted into Israel. They, they weren't starting a new religion. They were becoming a part of Israel. The church, all Christians, composed of both Jews and Gentiles, were considered the new Israel, the true Israel. So when James addresses his letter to the 12 tribes in the dispersion, he's basically saying, to all Christians all over the world. That is his audience, all Christians everywhere. What's interesting about that is when you come to a question like those conflicts and disputes among you, where do they come from? James isn't addressing a specific dispute that he's aware of in a particular town. He's addressing the fact that everywhere the church exists, Throughout the whole wide world, there are conflicts and disputes within it. James doesn't know exactly what the fight is about, but he readily assumes that wherever there's a group of Christians trying to live in community together, there is a fight of some kind going on. And here's what's interesting about what he says as to the cause of those conflicts. He doesn't need to know what the fight is about in order to know why it's happening. Any conflict or dispute going on within the church is not really about whatever it is that started that dispute in the first place. When we have church conflicts, we're not really fighting about what we think we're fighting about. What it's really all about is jealousy. It's about envy. It's about pride. Why do we fight within the church? We fight within the church because we're not fully submitted to God. We're trying to serve God and our selfish interests at the same time. We're double agents. Do they not, meaning these conflicts and disputes in the church, do they not come from your cravings that are at war within you? You want something and do not have it, so you commit murder. Now that's ridiculous, you say back to James. I've never murdered anyone in my life. Wouldn't even think about it. But remember what Jesus taught in the Sermon on the Mount. 
You have heard that it was said to those of ancient times, you shall not murder, and whoever murders shall be liable to judgment. But I say to you that if you are angry with a brother or sister, you will be liable to judgment. And if you insult a brother or sister, you will be liable to the council. And if you say, you fool, you will be liable to the hell of fire. So according to Jesus, and shouldn't everything in the church be according to Jesus? According to Jesus, if you have ever been angry with another Christian or insulted another Christian, then you are every bit as sinful and guilty as someone who has committed murder and you will be held liable to the same exact judgment. So why do we get angry with and insult other Christians? Well, according to James, it's usually when they interfere with us getting what we want. You want something and do not have it, so you commit murder. Now, there is such a thing as righteous anger, That's not what James is talking about here. Jesus got angry at times. Mainly, he got angry when religious people used their religion to oppress others, when the scribes and Pharisees used their religion to erect barriers between people, to take advantage of the poor, and to justify not helping someone in need. That's when Jesus got angry. If someone uses their so-called faith or their position within the church to oppress the downtrodden or bring harm on someone or to justify behaviors that are anything but Christ-like, there is reason to get angry about that. But, But when the church makes a decision that you don't like, or you don't get the position or the recognition that you crave, or someone expresses an opinion with which you disagree, and you respond with anger and ridicule? Don't you dare say, but at least I've never murdered anyone, because Jesus says, oh, yes, you have. James says, do these conflicts and disputes among you not come from the cravings that are at war within you? You want something and do not have it, and so you commit murder. He goes on. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly in order to spend what you get on your pleasures. There are two different issues at play here, both of them having to do with prayer. Why is it that we don't get what we want? Well, James says sometimes, sometimes you don't get what you want because you don't pray for it. When I was preparing to enter seminary, My first wife and I were looking for an apartment in the Columbus area. We were young, I was fresh out of college, neither of us had ever worked a full-time job, so our options were pretty limited. But we got an apartment guide, we circled out about 10 places that, that we thought might be a possibility. And the day that we went to Columbus and started looking at these places, it was just a huge disappointment. For, for one reason or another, none of them was going to work for us. And we got very discouraged. We spent that next week at Lakeside visiting annual conference for the first time, and I spent some time early in that week ruminating and, and honestly complaining about our lack of success in finding a place to live. I said to myself, here I am getting ready to enter seminary so that I can devote my life to God, and God won't even give us a place to live so that I can do it. And that's when God said to me, but have you prayed about it yet? Mm. I hadn't. 
I hadn't prayed at all about where we were going to live. I, I just figured we'd check out a few places, find the right one. God would line it all up because, of, after all, I was doing this to serve him. But I hadn't prayed about it. So for the rest of that week, you can believe that I was praying hard about it. And on our way back home from Lakeside, we stopped in Columbus again, and the first apartment we checked out was the perfect one, and then we went down the street and we both found jobs that same day. You do not have because you do not ask, says James, plainly. But there are other times that we do ask and still don't get it. You ask and do not receive, James continues, because you ask wrongly in order to spend what you get on your pleasures. Sometimes we don't get what we pray for because we're asking for something that is not aligned with God's will. We're praying in a selfish way. In some cases, that's easy to see. If I'm praying for a new sports car, and God doesn't give me a new sports car, well, yeah, that was a selfish prayer. I just wanted it because I wanted it, not because I wanted to further God's kingdom in any way. And even if I said, but God, I'll use that sports car to drive in every Christian demonstration from now until the kingdom comes, I think God would see through that. He knows my motivation. If I pray for God to let my lottery numbers hit, and I promise that I'll give 90% of it to the church, God still isn't going to give me what I'm praying for because what I'm praying for is participation in sin. God isn't going to bless participation in sin. God tells us to to work for our pay and to give whatever we can to the poor, not throw it away trying to get something for nothing. It's easy to understand why those prayers don't get answered. But there are other prayers that don't seem nearly as selfish. Prayers that really have nothing to do with wanting to spend on my own pleasures. If I'm praying for a friend that's having financial struggles, I'm praying for an addict in need of recovery, if I'm praying for a physical condition to be healed, I I would not call any of those selfish prayers. But if the friend with financial struggles still hasn't learned the lesson God has been trying to teach, or the addict for whom I'm praying isn't willing to put down the bottle, or if I'm praying for my own healing but I don't want to do the things that the doctor recommends, well... God's ways are beyond our understanding. God does use trials to teach us lessons, to reform our ways, to draw us closer to himself. If our prayers are in any way trying to bypass any of that, then God is not going to give us what we want because what we want is not aligned with his will. What we want is often determined by the ways and the values of this world. Do you not know, continues James, that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. Perhaps you might think that James has finally gone too far. Before making that determination, though, consider the words of Jesus in John 12, 25, those who love their life lose it. And those who hate their life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Or likewise, what Jesus said in Luke 14, 26, whoever comes to me and does not hate father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, and even life itself, 
cannot be my disciples. We need to be careful here. What Jesus means by hating life in this world or hating family is not what we mean by hate. He's not saying we should have violent emotional feelings against them. That wouldn't make any sense given the fact that Jesus' primary number one overarching value is love, love for all people. What he means by hate is to turn away from something, to reject one thing in favor of another thing of even greater value. It means that Jesus must be the prime value of all of our lives. It means we must be willing to turn away, even from parents or children, brothers or sisters, when they try to prevent us from going the way of Christ. It means we must be willing to sacrifice even life itself in this world in defense of our faith in Christ. It means I have to be willing to die for Christ. And and if I continue to live in this world, then I must wholeheartedly live for Christ wherever He places me, doing whatever He has for me to do, no matter what anyone else thinks or says about it. No matter even what my closest family and friends think and say about it. Christ must take supremacy over all if my faith in him is true. That's exactly the same thing that James means by friendship with the world being enmity with God. The values of this world are not the values of the kingdom. The ways of this world are not the ways of God. If I claim to belong to Christ, but I continue to live in the ways of the world, ambition over service, selfishness over generosity, manipulation over submission, and I continue to support the values of this world, pride ahead of humility, wealth ahead of open-handed trust, power ahead of sacrifice, then I am, in fact, committing adultery against God. Or do you suppose it is for nothing that the Scripture says God yearns jealously for the spirit that he has made to dwell within us. Our spirits were made by God and for God. When we turn our spirits away, chasing after the things of this earth, God is indeed jealous and he has every reason to be so. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God, James says. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. I love those verses, don't you? When we draw near to God, he draws near to us. But that drawing near doesn't mean just calling on his name and asking him to serve our whims. It means submitting ourselves to him, placing him at the center of everything. It means recognizing that our deepest yearning is for him, and that we can only ever be truly pleased by him and not by anything or anyone else in this world. It means acknowledging that any craving, any craving that is not of God is of the devil and must be resisted at all costs, even at the cost of personal 
And we have the promise of Scripture that if we do resist the devil, he will flee from us. So why does it seem like he's always so close at hand? Probably because we're not truly resisting him with all our hearts. We might resist him on the surface to an extent, but we still allow those thoughts to linger, don't we? We allow the what-ifs to play out in our imagination. That's not resisting the devil. That's playing with the devil. That's giving the devil room to romp around in your head all he wants. And if you let the devil romp around in your mind, then he is going to influence all of your cravings and desires. He is going to find an outlet, a way to bring you down. If you let the devil play in your mind, then sooner or later he is going to reign in your life. To resist the devil doesn't just mean not acting on those thoughts. It means rejecting those thoughts as soon as they arise. Nipping it in the bud. Saying to God, I renounce this. I give it all over to You, Lord. To say along with Jesus, get behind me, Satan. When Peter was speaking words of temptation to Jesus, Jesus didn't say, no, I'm not going to act on what you're saying, but keep talking. I like the sound of it. I don't mind fantasizing about it a little bit. Don't worry, God, I'm not actually going to do it. No! The moment those words of temptation hit his ears, Jesus shouted, get behind me, Satan! Because Jesus knew that if Satan can get inside your head, then he can take over your life. Draw near to God and He will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. You double-minded. He's talking to us. Every one of us who has ever thought that we could praise God and live for ourselves at the same time. Every one of us who has ever tried to serve God, but thought that we could still indulge in the ways of the devil once in a while, and it wouldn't be a big deal. That's being double-minded. Trying to be a double agent. It doesn't work. God is not fooled. So what can we do about it? Verses 9 and 10 give the answer. Lament and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned into mourning and your joy into dejection. Humble yourself before the Lord and He will exalt you. In other words, repent. Repent. Acknowledge that you have been living as a double agent and that you don't want to do that anymore. Reject the evil powers of this world. Commit yourself to God, recognizing that you cannot be the master of your own life. Draw near to God. And here, here's the amazing promise of Scripture. Draw near to God, and He will draw near to you. Humble yourself before the Lord. And he will exalt 
you. Amen. I invite you to stand as you are able now for our closing hymn, which is number 419 in the hymnal, I Am Thine, O Lord. Please be seated, and I would invite you to remain seated until the choir has uh, recessed out, and then once they are out, then you are dismissed as well. 
Go in the name of God, our Father, Christ, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, who gives us the power for holy living. Draw near to him, and he will draw near to you. Amen.